Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted, I said in my haste. All men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord, now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful morning, which started out so cold and which has warmed up and is just sunny and beautiful. Thank you for the week behind us. You've blessed us with food and with uh, just abundant grace, and we thank you for that. And uh, we look forward in anticipation to the week ahead. Help us to uh, live our lives rightly in your presence and to bring honor and glory to you as we walk in this life in the presence of others who don't know you so that maybe they'll want to call out on you as well. Help us to be a living testimony to you. And Lord, I ask that you bless each person here today and maybe they'll hear something that will help them in their daily walk or in understanding you better. Uh, may my words be pleasing in your sight. And uh, I just uh, want to give you the praise and the glory and the honor that you are due. What a wonderful, wonderful creator you are and all the majesty that you've displayed in your creation. And then on top of that, you've given us your word and you've given us above all your son, Jesus, to lead us back to you. Thank you for that, Lord. We love you and we praise you. And in his name we do pray. Amen. Well, just a few announcements. Um, unless, you know, unless some catastrophe happens, we're going to close on a building this week. It should be um, 6512 Superior Avenue. Uh, it should be, I think, Thursday is the closing day, unless I told them we can close early if they get the paperwork done. And uh, it's a small building. It's going to take a bit of work. Uh, the bathroom is unsuitable to be used, and we'll have to... Uh, expand that and while we're doing that because of the cost of doing the bathroom and and fixing the back wall which has a problem we're going to expand the building from a thousand feet to 1200 square feet so it, it's going to push it out another 200 feet and that's going to take some time uh so we'll be meeting out here for a while but uh i've got a contractor all ready to work and uh he, he'll do all the permitting and all that kind of stuff and uh, so hopefully that'll be something that'll be uh exciting and uh uh be a little more favorable to uh, preaching on days like today it's not bad but if you remember the crows last week and the red tide and all the other things that come up it should be kind of nice so uh, we're looking forward to that and um, it's uh, I think it's gotten up to about 48 degrees so if anybody decides they want to be baptized today I'll take you out and do that in the water no problem and uh, if not I fully understand and oh this lady here is waving her hands wildly so seems like she wants to get baptized I know for a fact she got baptized in the Jordan River, so I don't need to, uh, I don't need to uh, accommodate her today. Um, today is our 64th 
sermon in uh, Genesis. We're up to Genesis 28. Uh, I think it's verses 1 through 9 or something. Yes, 1 through 9. And um, uh, then next week, I just, if, if uh, you like this kind of thing, the story of Jacob and his ladder is just so filled with beauty. We'll be talking about that one next week. Today is uh, Genesis uh, 28, 1 through uh, 9, and it's uh, may God Almighty bless you. Uh, Jacob is getting ready to go up to obtain a wife, and uh, Isaac's going to bless him on the way. So we'll look at that here in a little while. And uh, because it's warm, I mean, I wasn't going to do a New Testament reading today because it was kind of cold, and I thought, well, I don't want people to sit here and uh, be cold, but it's actually not that bad. So we'll do a real quick New Testament reading, and we'll uh, do Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. And I'll just give very minimal commentary here. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Very difficult to do in the world in which we live when we have people that we disagree with, whether it's politically or uh, morally or whatever, uh, but they were instituted by God, and uh, that uh, doesn't mean we have to agree with their policies, and it doesn't mean that we have to uh, vote for them because they're in the office now. We have to re-vote for them later. What it means is that they are our authorities, and we have to live under them in a peaceable manner. And uh, we have tools in our society in order to uh, change those things. I mean, in other words, we have voting every couple years, and uh, we have other means of uh, uh, you know, keeping right and wrong separate within our society. If a president uh, does something wrong, we can bring charges against him and impeach him or whatever. But um, there, it, it, Paul says that there is no authority except from God. And so his plans are being met in the world. And we have to see that uh, as the nations line up against Israel. Uh, we have to see this going on, how what even our own government is perpetrating by... Uh, getting the nations around Israel lined up against them is all part of God's plan. So when you see these things, don't be fearful and, uh, you know, just praise the Lord that uh, his plans are being affected and that uh, he has a, uh, uh, a place for his people. Uh, verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Well, that makes sense. You know, if you uh, uh, God instituted the authority and you rebel against it, that's why they have prisons and that's why they've got fines and they've got all the things that take care of miscreants in society. And uh, whether we agree with, you know, a particular law in the society or not, we need to abide by it. And a very good example of this, and I bring it up from time to time, is abortion is the law of the land. It is a legal procedure. And therefore, we have no right to kill abortion doctors. Okay, what we do is we work from within the society to change the law on abortion and work within the society to change the hearts of people who are committing these uh, these things. But we have no right to usurp what is the law of the land. On the contrary, though, if abortion became mandatory, as it was in China or still is, they have a one child policy. And if you go over that, then they abort the child. We must disobey. And the reason why is because God's laws are higher than our laws. So uh, we, we have to have a priority and a ranking in our uh, belief system and in our uh, uh, system of obeying. God's law is always first. But when it comes to, as I said, uh, uh, instituted law in the land, such as uh, abortion, we have to allow it, even though we don't allow it in ourselves. But if it becomes something that is forced upon us, then we must disobey it. I hope I made that kind of clear. Um, let's see here, verse 3, For rulers are not a terror for good works, but to evil. Uh, this is not an all-encompassing statement. He's making a general statement here, that generally rulers 
uh, mean well for the people and the people that obey the laws of the land, of course, they're going to be on the good side of those laws. And if they're not, then, of course, we're going to have uh, uh, difficulties with those rulers. It's no different under Saddam Hussein. If you remember, he had Christians and he had uh, Muslims and he had all of these different sects of people under him. And they did live rather harm uh, harmoniously, with the exception of a few of the people which he gassed to death. But um, for the most part, they lived under the laws and they obeyed it. And because of that, they were allowed to continue on in the society. But uh, it's, it's a general rule that uh, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Once again, general rule, because in the society, if we're doing good, which we know is to follow Christ and to be an example and to preach his word and to not waffle on his word, there are people that do not like that. They will be intolerant of that, and they are in our government. They are in our places of uh, leadership. So this is a general rule of how we should conduct ourselves, but there are always people that are going to persecute people who do good. Um, do it as good, and you will have praise from the same. Uh, verse 4, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. Well, that, that is almost all-encompassing. If you do evil under a leader, whether he's a good or a bad leader, you've got to be afraid of him. Uh, just because you do good under him doesn't mean that you're going to be treated nicely. But if you do evil under him, certainly you are uh, going to fall out of favor with him. So if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. When it says bear the sword, that means he has the, the position of authority, the position of power, the armed forces, the police, you know, depending on what nation you're in, police state or, uh, you know, military state, whatever. But he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Verse 5, therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Well, you know, it speaks elsewhere in uh, the New Testament of people having a seared conscience. They, they simply no longer know how to do right. But if you don't have a seared conscience, you generally know what is right and what is wrong. And it's usually in black and white. Governments are pretty good about that, telling you what you can expect and what you can't. And uh, so just simply for conscience sake, you want to uh, act properly in your society. You want to act especially properly within the parameters of the Bible. And, uh, you know, as things devolve into anarchy in America, it's going to be more and more difficult. And that may happen. But um, in the meantime, uh, you, you live within conscience sake. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Yes, we pay taxes. Uh, we're obligated to pay taxes. There's nothing illegal about it in our society, and therefore we have to do it. Um, whether you agree with the tax system or not is irrelevant. And one thing that is certain is that when you file your taxes, you will be in violation of something because they have the code written to such an extent that no matter what you do, you will be in violation of some precept. Uh, that doesn't mean to intentionally deceive them, but it does mean that whatever you do, you are bound to be uh, you know, convicted of some wrongdoing unless you just toe the line and just, you know, pay the most you can and get all of that out of the way. But we do pay taxes. We have to pay for social things. We have to pay for roads and we have to pay for our military and all of these other things. And, uh, of course, we have to pay for people that don't want to work as well. So these are all things that we pay taxes for. And uh, verse uh, uh, taxes for their God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Uh, verse 7, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. 
And uh, I wrote a paper some time ago, which I never published, but it was on uh, uh, the ending of civility in America. And uh, America's kind of been on this downward trend since we kicked God out of our schools and everything. But if you have ever watched the three presidential debates between Bill Clinton and George Bush, and of course, Ross Perot is in here and he's kind of ignored through the whole thing. But um, Bill Clinton made a point. I've watched all three of them just recently. He made a point to never say President Bush. He called him Mr. Bush. And that was intentional. He was instructed to do that. And uh, it was to diminish Bush in the eyes of the people of the nation. And that is exactly contrary to what is being said here. Whether I like President Obama or not, he's my president. If I address him, I should address him as such. Um, I do have a nickname for him, of course, it's King Manasseh, because he so clearly fits the uh, pattern of King Manasseh in the Bible. But, you know, if I'm going to speak to him directly or to speak to people about him, he's my president. So uh, we have to remember to have respect for the position, if not the person. And uh, Bill Clinton, I believe, was really the, the ending of civility in our nation. At his point, it is degraded where you don't hear anybody call anybody anything by any title unless it's somebody they agree with. And it's very sad how we pro progress to that point. But that's where we are. And uh, that's our New Testament reading today, just a short seven verses. And um, I have one more psalm to read you before we get into uh, reading our text in the uh, sermon itself. And uh, this is the very center of the Bible. It's the 117th Psalm. If you ever get one of those emails or somebody links something on your uh, Facebook page where the 118th Psalm is the center of the Bible and it makes this per perfect picture and all that, it's not true. The 117th Psalm is the center of the Bible. It's also the shortest chapter in the Bible. And uh, if you look at the Bible from a numeric perspective, a guy over in... Um, uh, Scotland. A guy I know, his name is Vernon Jenkins. He was a professor at the University of Glamorgan, and uh, he's a very intelligent man. He, he takes the Bible and breaks it down into uh, numerical equations. And it's nothing spooky. It's just taking what's in here. And, and uh, it's, in other words, it's not something kind of funky like the Bible codes, but he comes up with these astonishing patterns, just astonishing things that are in the Bible and, you know, everything is eventually reduced to numbers anyway. But you get a pattern even out of the 117th Psalm and how it branches out to the rest of the Bible. So just a little squiggle for your brain there. Nothing important. But here we go. The 117th Psalm. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, for he is, his merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. If you notice there in the 117th Psalm, uh, God is speaking to the Gentiles. So of all of the uh, uh, conflict between Jew and Gentile, God's heart is just as much on the Gentiles as it is on the Jewish people. It's one thing we need to remember uh, as we, uh, you know, sometimes struggle in our theology, thinking what about the Jew, what about the Gentile? God really, really loves the Gentile people of the world as he does his own people, Israel. Um, let's see here. I shouldn't put that down because we're going to have to read the text here in just a minute. But... Uh, We'll get started on things as I do every single week. Uh, today is 3 March. We're into a new month here, and I like to give this day in history. So uh, I got a lot of little points. I'll try not to get too detailed on them. But uh, in 1791, the U.S. Congress passed a resolution that created the U.S. Mint. And so we were coining money. And uh, I read an article one time, I think it was in The Economist magazine, of how the government actually makes money by printing money. And I don't remember the process and how it works out. It was a very interesting article. 
as they make money and as they send it out to the people, a certain amount gets lost. They make money that way. A certain amount goes here and there, and they make money off of printing money. So it's just kind of a, 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 a cool thing to uh, consider. But I wish I could give you more details on it. I can't. Um, 1812, the U.S. Congress passed the first foreign aid bill. And uh, I'm sure it was meant with a good purpose back then. And uh, we've had some good foreign aid over the years. And we've had some really, really crummy expenditures of our tax dollars. And uh, it seems like the people that we give the most to are the people that hate us the most. And uh, I will tell you one thing. Don't get disheartened. I've been uh, to many, many countries in the world. And I've uh, stood at the U.S. Embassy. I've been down Embassy Row. Most places have all the embassies clumped together. And Without fail, you will see outside of any given embassy, nobody. But you go to the U.S. Embassy at any time of the day, any day of the week, and there is a line of people, hundreds and hundreds long, waiting to get citizenship to America or to come here. People understand the, uh, the greatness of this society and the things that we have and how we can offer uh, uh, to the world. But once again, those same people will stand in that line, and I've heard this, They'll badmouth America while they're standing in line to go to America. So it's kind of a perverse thing that uh, our, our minds think from time to time, but that's the way it is. On this day in 1817, the first commercial steamboat route went from Louisiana to New Orleans. And uh, if you've been around America at all, you've seen waterways all over. I mean, they go out in the, 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 the very Midwest and these places where you would never even expect it. They've dug out canals and we can ship things by water in huge amounts. There's locks in the middle of America that move things up and down for elevation. And uh, uh, we've got a great system of that, of train systems, of, uh, you know, uh, highways. Mostly came under uh, Eisenhower and from his time on the highways. And uh, uh, does anybody, I think I've asked this before, but does anybody know where our highway system is modeled from? Nazi Germany. They went over there and they saw what the Germans had done on the Autobahns and all of that. And they were so astonished. They came back and Eisenhower said, this is what we're going to do here. So uh, there you go. 1845, Florida, 27th United States. It became a state at that time. So there you go. I, I never would have expected 1845, but we've been around a while here. And then in the same year, 1845, the U.S. Congress passed legislation overriding a president's veto. And uh, I certainly wish we would use that more nowadays, but uh, it, it is something that is allowed by the law and it's something that is necessary, especially when a president uh, takes advantage of a situation, which just seems to be the uh, most common thing in the world since about the time of maybe Nixon or Carter. And it's just been abused more and more over the years. Um, 1849, the United States Department of the Interior was established. Uh, not a bad department, but as with all of them, they've started out with a good premise and they've really degraded over the years. But uh, Department of the Interior, same year, 1849, the U.S. Congress created the Territory of Minnesota. And that kind of uh, astonished me because I would have thought Minnesota would have been a state before Florida. And instead, it's only becoming a territory four years after Florida is a state. So uh, it kind of makes me feel good about the state I live in that we've been around so long. I, I just had no idea. Um, and let's see here, in uh, 1903, in St. Louis, a guy named Barney Gilmore was arrested for spitting. <laughs> you know, I mean, you got to have laws, and it is an unpleasant thing to see people spit. But, uh, you know, I mean, there, there's a point where, you know, I suppose if you spit on somebody, you should be arrested. But I'm not sure if spitting is something that we should be hauling people off to jail for. But it is a pretty repulsive uh, 
thing to you know see people do on the streets. And in the same year, 1903, the U.S. imposed, get this, a $2 head tax on immigrants. Now we pay them to come here. They, they move in and we give them money and they don't do anything. And, but back then we actually had a head tax on immigrants. And what a great idea. You got people coming into the country. They want to be here and you make a little profit in the process. Plus it helps pay for all their processing and everything. But uh, boy, if we flipped upside down in this nation, I just completely, everything is upside down. 1908, the U.S. government declared open war on U.S. anarchists. And last year in America, we openly welcomed anarchists. They uh, took over many, many of our parks and many of our uh, places of uh, uh, meeting around the uh, open public squares. And uh, they defecated on the streets. They were vulgar and violent. They stole from people. They beat people up. And uh, our, our government just condones this kind of thing when just less about 100 years ago, they had declared war on them. So once again, everything is upside down here. It's starting to get cold, isn't it? Um, 1952, finally, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld another one, New York's Feinberg Law that banned communist teachers in the U.S. And now that's all we have. I don't mean all teachers are communists, but I mean that's all that we hear about is that we've got communists and they're teaching in our, uh, our uh, colleges and in our universities. Well, back then it was, this is just, what, 50, that uh, was about 60-some years ago, they banned communists from teaching in schools. And how far we have fallen in such a short time in this nation. But that's, uh, that's the world we live in, and that's the world that we're heading to. And, uh, you know, people will wake up one day, and they'll realize the error of their ways. And I have a feeling that the Christians won't be here when it happens. But we'll see. Um, here we go. We're going to read our text for today. Once again, this is Genesis 28, verses 1 through 9. And uh, the title of this sermon is, May God Almighty Bless You. So here we go. Verse uh, chapter 28, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, then he went to Padanaram to Laban the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padanaram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebiot, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Today's the last part of Genesis where Isaac is going to take a leading role. And in fact, he's going to fade away very quickly during our verses today. Once we're through verse 9, it's going to be Jacob who takes the center stage in the biblical narrative. And this is going to last for quite a while. Jacob is a very important figure in the Bible. Abraham is, at his time, was mostly noted as a picture of God the Father. Although at times he did take on various roles. He uh, pictured God the Son in one or two of our sermons as well. Isaac predominantly prefigured God the Son. These two great men of faith did their time and now they stand in the background. Rebecca too, she's done. Last week we heard 
her final words to us, and now she is only going to be mentioned in relation to something or somebody else. As always, as always, the Bible directs our attention toward specific key figures for the purpose of showing us God's plan of redemption and conveying his thoughts and his heart to us. However, when these people no longer play a pertinent role, they're given the quiet respect of the privacy of life that they desire. These people lived very full lives and many stories could be told of the things that they did. But God has chosen these specific details for his purposes alone. So what we need to do is to pay attention to what God has given because these words truly encompass the heart and the mind of him for his beloved children. Our text verse for today comes from 1 Peter, it's chapter 1. It says there, therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Peter tells us to be as obedient children and to live our lives in holiness and reject that which is profane. And today we are going to see how obedience ultimately has to be aligned with God's plan or it ends in futility. One son's obedience follows what God intended, while the other a son, he's attempting to be obedient, he's actually gonna miss the mark. If we don't know what God's intent for us is, then we're bound to make the same types of errors as we see in the Bible. And so I will admonish you as I do week after week after week, read your Bible, study your Bible, and know your Bible. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. We have three separate thoughts today. The first is to find a wife. Although many Genesis stories can be looked at without much reference to the surrounding events, it would not make nearly as much sense for us to start chapter 28 without remembering what happened just prior to today's verses. After Jacob deceivingly obtained the blessing from Isaac, we read these words last week. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob her younger son and said to him, surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to my brother and Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like those who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? This sets up the thoughts for everything we're going to talk about today. Verse 1, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Based on what Rebekah said before and probably after thinking about it, our first verse today says that Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, had a great thought concerning this verse. He said, those who have the blessing must keep the charge which is annexed to it and not think to separate what God has joined. In other words, and this is an immediate life application for all of us, we cannot expect the blessings of the Bible without adhering to the things which we've been charged to do. 
I've been on Jewish blogs. I tell you what, they're a brutal bunch of people. They, if they don't know Jesus Christ, they are very proud of their Jewishness. And yet, the funny thing is, they really don't believe the Bible, but they will go ahead and quote the Bible when it favors them. And I'll quite often read this on Jewish blogs, this particular verse from Jeremiah chapter 31. It says there, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. The idea that they get from this is that God loves them no matter what they do and that they are special and that they are set apart by him. And I'll admit it's true. They are special and they are set apart by him. But that is only one half of the equation. They fail to take into account about four jillion verses of judgment on Israel for disobedience. If you want, we can sum up all of the blessings and all of the curses on Israel from two chapters of the Bible. One is Leviticus chapter 26 and one is Deuteronomy 28. The Lord gives the charge to the people of Israel and that's obedience. He then tells the blessings that they can expect for obedience, but then he goes on to tell the cursings that they can expect for disobedience. I've been to the Holocaust Memorial in Israel with my mom in 2003. It's known as the Yad Vashem and it is a very moving place to visit. And it stresses the tragedy of Israel throughout the years, and it focuses particularly on the Holocaust. But I tell you what, it fails to note any personal responsibility in the matter at all. And I told my mom when we pulled out of there that the only thing that I thought was missing from the wall of Yad Vashem was a copy of Deuteronomy 28 placed on the wall in the language of every nation that they had been dispersed to. I think that would have been a fulfilling part of that monument. In the end, their dispersion and their sufferings would not have happened if they were obedient to the Lord. We get the same thing here in churches all the time, though, and I'm not trying to pick on just the Jews. Christians do the same thing. They go into church and they claim the blessings of God and they claim prosperity, but they fail to walk in the counsel of the Lord, and they don't recognize the sin in their life for what it is. When tragedy comes, they project outward, not inward. When in fact, whether in Israel, whether in the church, or whether in our nation, we need to look at our own choices, which result in judgment. And I brought up 9-11 before. 9-11 would not have happened if we were obedient to the Lord. That's no doubt about it. That's as clear as it could be from the Bible. And yet we project outward and we blame the Muslims. Yes, they were the cause of it. They were the ones that did this. But God removed his hand of protection from us because of our own disobedience when we have financial troubles. You know, we can blame other people or we can say, you know what, I made personal choices which got me into this. We need to not project our failings outward unless there's a valid reason for it, but far too often we do it. Here at the beginning of the chapter, Isaac both blesses and he charges his son. Let us each remember the charge when we look for the blessing. In the case of Jacob, the charge is, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And I have to tell you what, we've been given a very similar charge in the New Testament. We got a young man over here, he's gonna get married someday. Pay attention to what it says here. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? The idea behind Paul's words is that we are to keep our allegiances faithful to our faith. We're 
to only marry believers, and we're to engage in business partnerships with Christians. It's hard enough to make a marriage work with a Christian person, but when our goals and our priorities don't sink, how much more difficult is it? Anybody agree with that here? So here we are with Jacob. He's 77 years old, and because of the birthright, and now the blessing which he has received, Isaac sees that it's time for him to get married and to start a family, which will keep the messianic line going. I gotta tell you what, it astonishes me. Every time I think of this, he's 77 years old and he's still not married and he's still not doing his thing. I just never get over that one. Pondering Rebecca's words here about the daughters of Heth, he realizes that it is best for Jacob to go up to Padamaram, where Rebecca was from, in order to find a wife from there. Esau's wives, because they had a different value system and different priorities, were a source of grief to the family. Isaac wants Jacob to not find himself in the same mess. Verse 2, Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there, from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Isaac is taking the same care of Jacob that Abraham did for him so many years earlier. However, unlike Isaac, who stayed in the land of Canaan, while a wife was chosen for him by Abraham's servant, Jacob is going off to Mesopotamia. And the reason for the difference is that God wants to show us different things about his work for us. The story of Abraham's servant going off to find a bride for Isaac pointed to the Holy Spirit getting a bride for Jesus while he's in heaven. It's the church age. It's pictured by the land of Canaan, the promised land. So here is Isaac staying in Canaan, and the servant is out in the land of the Gentiles looking for a bride for him. That's the picture we're to get of Isaac's wife being obtained for him. Jacob, however, is going to leave the promised land to find a wife because he's picturing Jesus in a different way. We're going to see this as the story continues to unfold in all of the chapters ahead. And I got to tell you what, amazing and beautiful pictures are going to come out. Next week starts it when he goes off and sees the ladder to heaven, and it just continues on and on. The pictures of Jesus are unbelievable. Padanaram, where he is going to. If you've noticed, this, is, this area has been called different things at different times, and it's because these words are important. At this time, it's called Padanaram, and the word, it comes from two different words. One is Aram, and that comes from a word which means high or to rise up. Padan is not a noun which is found in the Hebrew language, but it comes from the word Pada, which means to rescue or to ransom. Adding the N at the end of a word in Hebrew is often used to pronounce a noun for a person or a place. So Padan Aram basically means elevated ransom. And this makes the procuring of Rebecca's wife at the time of Isaac much easier to understand. And it is also going to shed light on how Jacob obtains his wives as well. If you know the story of how he does, there is a price which is to be paid. It's a bride price. And thus the name points to the work of Jesus as he obtains a bride. Okay? A ransom is a release of property or person for payment of a redempted, uh, I'm sorry, for payment of a demanded price. In biblical lingo, it is redemption from sin and its consequences. And I'm going to give you an example so you can understand kind of what redeeming is. If any of you is old enough to remember S&H Green Stamps, I'll explain this. S&H Green Stamps was a company and they had all kinds of stuff that they get, neat stuff. And they buy like a, a billion Schwinn bikes from Schwinn. So they get it at a very low price and they put it in their stores around America. 
and they'd have toasters and they'd have microwaves and all these cool things that everybody wanted, the newest gadgets. And what you would do is you would go to your local grocery store, which in our case was Publix, and they'd give you green stamps. For if you bought $20 worth of food, you might get uh, 15 green stamps and they'd be ones and maybe a, five, a couple fives and a 10. But if you've got $150 worth of food, then you get ones, tens, you know, it go all the way up and you get these big stamps and they were all different sizes. And it was real exciting because you had all these stamps and uh, it made you want to spend more money in order to get more stamps. And what you do is you get this book. It was uh, just a, a little S&H green stamp book that they would provide to you. And it was just this thin little book, and you'd start putting the stamps in there. And you'd see this thing eventually start getting bigger and bigger like a balloon because all these stamps are crammed in here. And they had little places where you would put each stamp. Mom would get these stamps for us, and we would uh, uh, be so excited. You know, you get to lick the stamp, and you get to put it in the place, and it was, it was so exciting. And we would look through the catalog that came with the book, and it would show you all of the cool things. And I guarantee you, I'd look at, oh, there, there's a 10-speed bike. My hair is standing up, and it's not from the cold. It was because from the excitement of knowing that they have this thing in hock, and I can ransom it out. I can purchase it out of where it's at. And, of course, she's probably looking at the newest stove, or she's looking at, uh, you know, a bread maker or something. And so we're all kind of competing in our minds. What is the price we are going to pay to get this, this go these goods out of stock, to pay the ransom price? And this is what is going to happen. This is what happened with Rebecca. This is what's going to happen with Jacob as he gets his wives. And I want you to think about this before we get to the actual meeting of the wives. Their names are Leah and Rachel. And the Bible focuses on certain aspects of those girls. And it is very important, the aspects. Leah has weak eyes, it says. And Rachel is beautiful in form. And there's a reason why those are in there. There's a reason why God focuses on these specific details. Otherwise, it doesn't make any difference, you know, what the girls look like. But God is focusing on this as a part of this ransom, this redemption that is going on in human history. So please pay attention to those details. Read those stories, and we're going to get to them in the week ahead, weeks ahead. And I'm so excited. As I type these sermons and I see what God is doing in there, I'm actually crying sometimes at the beauty of what God is showing us is coming in Jesus Christ and I have to tell you what, the price for our sins was a high price indeed. It was truly an elevated ransom, just as the name Padan Aram implies. For Jesus to procure his bride, it involved leaving heaven, just as Jacob is leaving the promised land. And he came to be among us, just as Jacob is going to be among the people where the bride is in the house of Bethuel, it says. Well, Bethuel, if you remember from many sermons ago, means daughter of God. It's a very unusual name for a male, but it's here for a reason. It pictures the Jewish people. We noted that when he was first introduced. From the house of these people, Jacob is told to take a wife from the daughters of Laban. His name, Laban, means white or brick. And in the Bible, white is a symbol of purity. Therefore, procuring a bride from this family is a picture of those who are purified and who will become a part of God's people. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 4. He says, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. There's a harvest being conducted in the people of the world. Those who call on Jesus will be purified. They'll be made spotless and white. They are a part of the good harvest of grain, which Jesus speaks about throughout all of his parables and all of his words the harvest of the human people, the soul of man. 
our second thought today is the blessing follows the charge. The charge was given. It's not to, to not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, but instead to get one from the house of Bethuel. And now Isaac bestows his blessing upon Jacob. The important thing to remember here is Jacob, by receiving this blessing from his father, knows that he's been forgiven for what he did by obtaining the blessing deceitfully as the firstborn. Now he has no need to worry about this, but he can certainly feel that everything has been forgiven. This blessing is very important in that regard. Verse 3, may God Almighty bless you. In Genesis 17, verse 1, these words were spoken to Abraham. When Avram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Avram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. Isaac invokes the same name, God Almighty, or El Shaddai, in order to bless Jacob. This revelation of God, El Shaddai, is of existence and it is of performance. It is to him that Isaac calls for the blessing. He is the eternally lasting, absolute, all-powerful God. His nature is unchangeable, and yet he causes change in his creation. And believe it or not, this is the God that Aristotle, outside of the covenant people of Israel, 250 years before the time of Christ, in his mind understood that he was the unmoved mover. He's the one that causes movement to actually occur when no movement occurs in him. This is El Shaddai. Verse 3 continues, and make you fruitful and multiply you. A few verses later in Genesis 17, once again, El Shaddai says this to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. So this same blessing is coming down now upon Jacob that came upon his father and it came upon his father's father. Isaac calls for this blessing upon Jacob. Verse three continues, that you may be an assembly of people. In this verse is a very remarkable phrase. It's likhal amim. The Hebrew word kahal, where that comes from, will later be applied to the people of God as an assembly. It is where the Greek word ekklesia comes from, which we derive from it the notion of the called out people of God. Verse four continues, and give you the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham is one which comprises the land, the multitude of descendants, the line of the Messiah, and thus the filling of the world with the knowledge of the gospel. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that this promise includes us in the church. Here's what Paul says. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham before saying, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. I'll stop right now. I got some uh, throat lozenges in there. The wind's just shifted and the red tide's coming in. So if you want to pass those out, please do. This promise then, the promise that we're given right here encompasses the major doctrines of justification by faith, which includes redemption. It includes forgiveness, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, and so on. All of this is tied up in what we would consider the blessing of Abraham. It is an exclusive blessing. It was given to Isaac, but it was not given to Ishmael. It is now given to Jacob. It will not be given to Esau. It is a central point of the biblical narrative and it surrounds around the person of Jesus Christ. Verse four continues, to you and your descendants with you, 
Unlike his father and his grandfather, who are noted for one son in particular, Jacob, or as he will become known, Israel will be noted for 12 sons. One will lead to the Messiah, but all 12 of his sons will participate in the blessings of the assembled people of God. From the time of Jacob on, the Bible will speak of Israel as a collective unit of people. Some will fall out of favor, but God will always keep a remnant of each tribe as his own special people. For, verse four continues, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all to a large degree are pilgrims in the land. They never have their own fixed home. So this blessing is going beyond just Jacob. This same terminology is also gonna be used later of others in the Bible. But the people of Israel will inherit the land as their own. They will live in it, they will build in it, and they will strive with God in it. The land is given to Israel. And that's very important for the world in which we live in today where this is not considered a valid tenet of the Bible. People dismiss this and say that the land doesn't belong to Israel. We've got churches that actively work against Israel because of this. This word could not be any clearer than what it is. Anyway, in a fuller sense though, the land of Canaan is a picture of heaven for the believer. In this place that we will eventually inherit, we will live in the presence of God. Just as God dwelt among the Israelites in the tabernacle and then in the temple, we are going to live right in the presence of God. And if you wanna read those exciting verses, it's in Revelation 21 and 22, I believe. Uh, might even be mentioned in Revelation 20. But our inheritance is an eternal one. And our guarantee of entry into that is the realization of the messianic blessings found in Jesus, which are being told about right in these verses. Verse four continues, which God gave to Abraham. Jacob is being sent away from his home. He's going off to another country where he will work and he's gonna be cheated. And he's not gonna return again for many, many years. And so he is going to have to look back on his father's words now, and he's gonna to have to look forward in faith to the realization of those promises. The promises of Abraham are to him promises which can only be seen through eyes of faith. The times ahead for Jacob are gonna be difficult and the future will be unsure except as he relies on the surety of God and his word. The blessing to Jacob is no less sure and no less truthful to us. Let's read this blessing again as a whole and then determine to hold fast to it just as God expects us to. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may be the inherit the land in which you are a stranger which God gave to Abraham. We are the assembly and we wait the land to which we are, our eyes are right now lifted which is the heavenly Mount Zion and I tell you what I believe it is coming soon to God's faithful people. Our third thought today Esau tries again. Verse 5. So Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padanaram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Guess what? Rebekah is called here the mother of Jacob and Esau. The Bible now firmly establishes Jacob first and it places him over his brother Esau. The prophecy given to her when the children were still in her womb is fully realized right here in this verse. The older shall serve the younger. From the narrative which is coming, it will seem as if Jacob took a few provisions and he left all by himself. And this is what the account seems to imply. If you've ever seen a movie of Jacob, you always see him leaving 
alone and he walks all this way all by himself and he arrives in desperate straits and if you see any pictures pictographs from the bible of this you always see jacob alone out there and what commentators every commentator i've ever read has said the same thing jacob got up there he was alone he was in a destitute state they use all of these words wasn't the case at all jacob did not leave alone we don't know how many people traveled with jacob but we do know that at least deborah rebecca's wet nurse and lifelong companion went with him she was uh, probably she's probably the woman that delivered rebecca's children including jacob and now she will be the one who will probably oversee the birth of jacob's children for a woman who is mentioned by name only one time in the bible she has played an immensely important role in history leading to jesus and we we know that she goes along now because genesis 35 verse 8 says that she was with jacob when he returns on his journey but no mention is made of him ever coming back to see his family during those years and what it later states implies that he never did therefore at least one person deborah whose name means be and is a picture of the word of god the holy bible went with them even though she is never mentioned we know that this is so and guess what this is a picture for all of us that if we go out through our travels in life we should carry along our bible with us verse 6 Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take himself a wife from there and that as he blessed him he gave him a charge saying you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan unlike Jacob who's setting out in faith and taking with him the word of God Esau looks in the wrong direction for restoration he sees that Jacob was blessed by his father even though he acted deceitfully he's not quite understanding what's going on then he sees that he's been sent away to get a wife that isn't from the daughters of Canaan. The way that Esau perceives the world is very sad because he only looks at the surface of things and he attempts to have things rectified in ways that only make things worse. In him and in the things that Esau does, we see a type of person who stumbles over the stumbling block. What is so simple and which requires no real effort can be the most difficult thing of all. God wants faith. He doesn't want deeds. Once we exercise faith, then he looks to our deeds that are done in faith, not those with external pretense. Esau keeps missing this, as so many people in the world do. They stand right at the door of Christianity, but they never enter into it. Instead, what do they do? They get out a hammer and they get out nails, and they actually nail it even tighter than it was at the beginning. This is works-based religion. It is not a faith-based relationship. And this is Esau. Verse 7. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. God instructs us to obey our parents for a reason. He wants to be our father, but it can only happen through obedience. Jesus is noted for his obedience in Hebrews chapter 5. Here's what it says. Though he was a son, yet he was obedient by the things which he suffered. We're speaking about the creator of everything that we see. Everything that we think he understands and he knows already. And yet it says that he suffered for obedience sake. And having been perfected, it says, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And when you read that particular verse, I don't want you to be confused. When it says all who obey him, it's almost synonymous with just simply having faith because we are putting our trust in his works and our obedience is faith in what he did. Philippians tells us that because of his obedience, God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name.
Esau sees this trait in his brother as well. Jacob went to Padan and Ram just as he's instructed, and from there he's going to get a wife. The distance is about 480 miles from where they are down in Beersheba right now. For Esau to go there is going to be a very long journey. It would mean a long time away from his family, and he'd be unable to regain Isaac's favor during the time that he's gone. He's unwilling to pay this elevated ransom just as Adam failed before him. But Esau has a problem that needs to be fixed, and we're going to see it right here in the next verse, verse 8. Also, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. Esau, Esau, he finally puts two and two together, and he comes to the realization that dad isn't happy with his wives. It took a little while for him to clue into this, though, because the guy got married at 40 years old, and he's now 77 years old. It's taken him a mere 37 years to figure this one out. The local women make Isaac unhappy. As the verse literally says, they were evil in his eyes. But if you notice something here, it doesn't mention Rebecca in this verse. This is a clear indication that Esau does not care diddly about what his mother thinks at all. Instead, he's thinking about his father and how he can regain his favor and he can regain the blessing rather than actually pleasing his parents. Verse 9, so Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebiot, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. As I said, it is a long way to Padanaram, and so instead of doing what might be pleasing to his parents, he goes to marry a daughter of Ishmael. The reason he did this is because Ishmael is the son of Abraham, and he's thinking that this is going to make Isaac happy. There's a problem with this, though. Ishmael was removed from the house, and it is Isaac who is the son of promise. Ishmael, as was noted in a previous sermon, or actually several previous sermons, is a son of Hagar and is a picture of the law. Paul is very clear about explaining this in Galatians chapter 4. No descendant of Ishmael is ever found in Jesus' genealogy because the law is of works. It is faith, not works, which please God. If you see, Esau is a picture of fallen man. Instead of exercising faith and traveling to Badan Aram to obtain a wife which would make his father happy, he goes to Ishmael, a picture of works in the law, in order to do so. The girl he marries, her name is Mahalat, and the name very well describes the situation. Her name basically means sad song. It would be in Hebrew what we would call the blues. And Esau's attempt at finding favor is going to result in exactly that, the blues. He's doing what religions all around the world do every single day, working to please God instead of exercising faith to please him. This is the stumbling block that Esau trips over once again. He's trusting in his deeds to please his father instead of what he would, his father would have him do. The life and the lesson of Esau continues along just as it has all along. He keeps looking in the wrong place and expecting the right, right result. And there's a very good parallel of Esau. It's found in the book of Judges chapter 17. So I want to take a moment. I want to read you about this guy. And I want you to pay attention to how these people keep making the same bad decisions and thinking they're doing the right thing when in fact what they're doing is disobedient. This is from uh, Judges chapter 17. Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying in my ears, 
here is the silver with me. I took it. So this guy thinks he's going to prosper by taking silver. Okay? And his mother puts a curse on it. Now he thinks, well, I don't want to be cursed. So what does he do? He turns around and he tells his mom, I stole the money and I'm giving it back to you. Okay? So I'm going to do a good thing here. And his mother said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my son. Oh, boy. So the curse is now going to be a blessing. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. So now we're going from stealing and a curse, we're going to disobeying God's word by making a carved image and a molded image out of something rather than worshiping the creator, right? Okay, now therefore, I will return it to you. Thus he returned the silver to his mother, gave the silver to his mom, then his mother took the 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith. Now, she had wholly dedicated these 1,100 shekels of silver. And instead of wholly giving them over, she takes out only 200 to make this thing. So she's violating her own word in the process, okay? So he made them into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Mika. Oh boy, now I've got a little god that I can worship. The man Mika had a shrine. Oh, he doesn't just have a, a, a god, he's got a little shrine for it. He's starting to make a little picture of heaven here. Then he makes an ephod, something to wear so he can walk around and worship this thing. And he made household idols. And he consecrated one of his sons. Oh boy, guess what? The tribe of Levi is the tribe of ministering in Israel. He takes one of his own sons in violation of the law again, and he's making him a priest. Okay, so everything he's doing, he thinks is going to benefit him. And instead, it's exactly the wrong thing that happens. So here we go. He's got the shrine. He's got the idols. He's got one of his sons consecrated as a priest. And then verse 6 says, In those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is the theme of the book of Judges. We read that verse again and again, where people are just making bad mistakes, bad mistakes, and thinking, I'm going to please the Lord, or I'm going to profit, or I'm going to get rich off of this. Verse 7, Now there was a young man from Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah. He was a Levite. Okay, so now all of a sudden a Levite enters the equation. He's staying there. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem and Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim. Oh, he's off on a journey. And where does he end up? He ends up at the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? So he said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah. And I'm on my way to find a place to stay. I'm looking for a home. Well, what does Micah do? He says, well, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. So now he's going from a bad priest because he's not really a Levite. He's got a good priest to worship this shrine and this idol and he's got the ephod and all the things he's not supposed to have. So he's mixing all these crazy ideas with what he thinks is the right thing to do. Micah said to him, dwell with me. I will be a father and a priest to me and I will give you 10 shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes and your sustenance. So the Levite's going, oh boy, I'm getting all this stuff and all I have to do is minister to one house in Israel. Then the Levite was, so the Levite went in. Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became like one of his own sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite. Then the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, here we go. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. Once again, everything he's doing is completely wrong. And yet he thinks he's going to get a good result. And this is Esau. Well, what happens to the guy? Eventually, the tribe of Dan's looking for a home. They come up and they, they see this priest living there. They're going, what are you doing here? He says, well, I moved into this house and I'm a priest to this guy. And they say, well, why don't you be a priest to a whole tribe of Israel instead of just one guy? So what do they do? They take him. They take the idols. They take everything of Micah's. And they carry it off to the north. All right. Micah goes chasing after him and he says, what are you doing? That's my stuff. And this is my Levite. And they say, keep your mouth quiet. You know, harm could come to you. 
And so what does he do? He puts his tail between his legs and he heads right back to his house. He lost everything in the process of thinking that he's going to be blessed by the Lord because he's disobedient. And this goes back right to the beginning verse today. The charge is given and we have to follow the charge in order to obtain the blessing. And this is the life and the lesson that we're to get from Esau. We are all fallen sons though of Adam, all of us, just like Esau. What we need to do is we need to move from the curse to the promise. We need to move from the devil to Jesus Christ. We need to move from wrong thinking and we need to get to right thinking. You know, I posted something on Facebook this week, which I got so many people made comments on and some were so upset at me about this. I, all I did was I quoted what the, uh, the Pope had done. He said, I promise my complete obedience and reverence to the new Pope. He's retiring. We got a new Pope coming in. He doesn't know who this guy is. He doesn't know what he's going to say. For all we know, this guy could say, Jesus isn't Lord. And he is promising in advance complete obedience and reverence to this person, a fallen son of Adam. And I called him out on it. I just posted what he said. And I said, this is blasphemy. And some people took that so wrong. They said, well, you're diminishing uh, Christianity in other people's eyes. No, he is. He is. And we need to call that type of thing out. That's all there is to it. This is what we need to do in our life is we need to think clearly on issues concerning religion. Just because somebody says they're a Christian, Mormons do. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And yet they're polytheists. These things have to be discerned because if not, precious souls are going off to hell. That's what's happening because people are not willing to simply think through the important issues of Esau and of Jacob and of selling our birthright for a bowl of soup and looking for a blessing in the process. It, it, it simply isn't going to happen. I want you to know that if you're trusting in something that you do in order to make God happy, then what you are doing is trusting in yourself. And guess what that is? That's self-idolatry. What we need to do is to put ourselves aside and we need to trust in what God has already done, just as Jacob did. He was trusting in the promise, and he received the blessing. Only after that does Jacob accomplish his deeds. Esau is doing exactly the opposite. He's trusting in his deeds in order to secure and obtain the promise and receive a blessing. So please let me take two more minutes of your time and explain to you how you can receive the blessing without any works. And the reason why we can is because Jesus Christ has done those works for us. He came as a man born of a woman, but born without Adam's original sin because his father is God, born of the Holy Spirit. He entered into the stream of time, which he created. And he, without sin in his birth, lived sinlessly throughout his entire life. He fulfilled the law, God's righteous standard, which we cannot fulfill. And he did it on our behalf. And he says, if you will take your trust, O oh, you sinner, and put it in me and what I have done, I will move you from the devil to me. I will move you from fallen Adam to the risen Christ. I will give you eternal riches, heaven's glory for simple faith. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he asks us one thing, and it's the stumbling block. What I talked about earlier, it's so simple. It's so small that we just trip right over it. We don't even see it. It's faith. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. This is what Jesus Christ offers to us. You are God. I can't save myself. I know you can do it. And I trust in that.
So if you've never done that today, I would hope that you would just bow your head and ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins. Call on Jesus Christ as Lord and spend eternity in his glorious presence. I have a closing verse today. It's from Isaiah chapter 65. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Just like Esau, just like Micah, everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. Let God's thoughts direct you. Let God's thoughts direct you. Next week, as I said, it's Genesis 28, verses 10 through 21. It's entitled, The Ladder to Heaven. I was talking to John back here at uh, lunch a couple weeks ago about it. It's just so astonishingly beautiful. Every single thing that you see in this picture, everything points to Jesus Christ. Every single thing is wonderful. Today's poem, based on the uh, nine verses that we just looked at, is called Two Sons, Different Paths. Then Isaac called Jacob and gave him a blessing and a charge. He said, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel. My word, discharge. Take a wife from your daughters, from the daughters of your mother's brother Laban. And this is the blessing that he spoke over Jacob, his son. He pronounced it fully until he was done. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham. To you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, off to Padanaram he went, to Laban the son of Bethuel the Syrian did he go. To the brother of Rebekah he was sent, she the mother of Jacob and Esau, as you know. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he did say, you shall not take a wife from Canaan's daughters. No, not from there. And Esau saw that Jacob had obeyed his father and also his mother and gone to Padanaram. He also saw that for the daughters of Canaan, Isaac had a bother. They did not please him like those of the family of Abraham. So Ishmael, to take a daughter from Esau, he went. Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. She, the sister of Nebioth, came to Esau's tent. Along with his other wives, she was an addition. What can we learn from these two men? What lessons do the stories of their lives tell? God is showing us once again the proper path to heaven or the one that leads to hell. But God loves his creatures and desires all to come willingly. But he leaves the choices up to each of us. We can live faith, faithful lives pleasingly, which are directed to his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Or we can turn from him and follow our own will. But in the end, that is a sorrowful, bitter pill. Let each of us come with grateful hearts to our Lord and King and shower him with songs of thankful praise. With our tongues, let us always and forever sing of the greatness of God for blessed eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the story of Jacob and Esau and thank you for the lessons that we can learn from this, this man who just couldn't seem to figure out all that you wanted for him was just to have faith and to be obedient. Help us to live obedient lives and to just be like Jacob who goes off in faith and he carries with him the word of God when he goes and uh, help us just to tell other people about that word of God as well. The, the word which reveals your son, Jesus Christ. And help us to be bold in our proclamation of him and never to waffle in our convictions of him. And Lord, help us to just uh, be pleasing to you in your sight in the week ahead. We thank you for uh, the sun which has come out and then hidden again and then come out and then hidden again and uh, warming us up and then giving us a, a moment of cool. Thank you for that, Lord. 
Thank you for the week ahead. As I said, we just look in anticipation of the good things that you have for us. And please bless each person here as they go about it. And uh, may we just remember to praise you and glorify you in all ways and at all times. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.